Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this podcast, I speak to Dr. Suhu, who talks about how his writing and speaking has really enabled his product management business to grow spectacularly. We also talk about the changes that have come about because of the epidemic and how virtual events are putting power back in the hands of speakers. We have a really interesting section on Jock's technical setup at home and how he's managed to create almost from scratch a professional video production setup, which is really fascinating and something that I think I'm going to have to copy. Anyway, sit back and enjoy. Jock, welcome to the Fireside with Gig podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thank you very much, Richard. It's good to be here. Now, you are a product manager uh, and also a speaker, of course. Yeah. But first of all, let's talk about product management. Mm. Uh, lots of people speak to help promote their work, but it's important to understand the background context and it's important to understand the work as well. So what does a product manager do? A product manager is one of those strange roles that I think if more common sense existed, there wouldn't be any need for us. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a provider of common sense. You bring it in your briefcase. We try to be. Essentially, we're the kind of person in an organization, usually uh, you know, technology company, but others as well, that's essentially asking the hopefully obvious questions such as, is there a problem to be solved? If there is a problem, who has it? Is it worth solving? Can we solve it? before actually going off and throwing a whole bunch of money, time and effort into building something that may or may not address a problem that exists. So yeah, we're trying to essentially make sure that when people build products or services or anything really, that it's going to be needed, that people are actually going to need the thing you're building. When did product management become a role? And how did you end up as a product manager? It's a funny one. People seem to trace back the origin of the role the proto role back to the sort of 1920s, 1930s, where a chap at Procter & Gamble um, established what we called a brand manager. Yeah, And this was essentially someone that spanned across a few different roles. So it spanned across brand marketing, it spanned across sales, it spanned across product development. But this was obviously in the world of kind of retail. This is actually for a soap brand, I think it was in, in, at the beginning. Mm. But the thing that was unique about the role was the fact that it spanned across these different disciplines. It was more of a generalist role rather than being very specific to marketing or sales or anything like that. Now, fast forward you know, a good number of years and kind of in the 90s, you started to get something approximating to what we do, but it was very process-led. It was almost like a branch of project management. But now, particularly with the number of startups, um, technology companies and so on that uh, we've had in the last 20 odd years, the product management role has really evolved into something. It's quite a different beast. And it's very much around focusing on what are the needs of the people who will be using your product? 
and making sure you're meeting those needs. It's about having a holistic view across the commercial, the technical, the business, the user experience of the product, but not necessarily being a specialist in any of those disciplines. So you're, you're really a generalist working with specialists across the company to ideate, create, build, sell, retire this product that you're creating. Is it more about the inception of a product before it's built or is it about running the product when it's live? It's absolutely the whole thing. It's everything from drawing board to live running to, you know, replacement and retirement. Okay. And thinking about the different approaches you need to take at different stages, thinking about the different ways in which you look at product in, say, a startup company versus an established company, or even looking at the difference between, you know, a fast moving consumer app versus an enterprise product that's used to support millions and millions of customers. You know, it's looking at all these different aspects and really tailoring the approach to make sure that the product is what it needs to be in the context. Maybe different companies do this differently, but and in a startup, everybody cleans toilets, right? So that's that's kind of understood. But <laughs> in a larger organization, how does the organization or how should the organization assign responsibility and accountability to a product manager? Are, you know, are they responsible for the profitability of a particular product or are they responsible for user happiness? How does that all work? So ideally, and again, as you say, it does differ because different organizations are, at, I would say, different levels of maturity or experience with product management. In an ideal scenario, the product manager is literally the owner of that product line. And when you say owner, do you mean like a mini CEO nearly? Yes, but that kind of implies that you've got direct authority. Now, here's, here's, where, the tri- here's <laughs> right. where the tricky yes. bit comes from. Because as I said, you're a generalist and you're working with all these different specialists. So you're cutting across sales, marketing, development, you know, user research, design. It's the herding cats bit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what, what the product manager's sort of superpower is to be able to draw together all these specialists and get them all moving in the same direction, but still being essentially responsible for the overall product and whether it succeeds or not commercially and with the actual people using the thing. So it's a really bizarre and slightly off-putting role, I think, because you know, you're put in a very strange position where you can't tell people what to do because they'll just turn around and go, you're not my boss. <laughs> but if you so, don't know enough about their domain, they won't respect you either. You've got to know exactly. financials, you've got to know tech, you've got to know marketing. Absolutely. It's one of those things where you end up being almost like a translator. And uh, there's a guy called uh, Martin Erickson, who's um, uh, very much one of these uh, experts on product management in the field and sort of one, one everyone looks up to. And he described the way you've got to be in product management as conversant in a number of different skills, but not necessarily an expert in any of them. So you've got to have a background, for example, in design or marketing, or you might come from a technical background or whatever. Um, So you might have some specialist knowledge in one particular area. But as soon as you become a product manager, you've got to be able to speak the language of designers, uh, of developers, you know, software developers, hardware developers, and all this kind of stuff. There must be third-level courses these days in product management. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I offer training to, to product managers, but there's no real hard certification. It's not like you can go to university and get a degree in product management. Yeah, like I can get a computer science degree or a marketing degree. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's partly a reflection of the fact that the role has been evolving quite so much over the last sort of 10, 20 years. There's lots of places that will be able to offer training and lots of ways in which you can do it. But the point is that product management is less about doing it in one specific way and being dogmatic about it. 
It's more about having a variety of different approaches or methodologies in your toolkit and being able to pull out the right tool for the right situation. You know, you would use potentially different approaches depending on whether you're in a startup or whether you're in a large company or, you know, that kind of thing. But it's difficult. It's almost like um, being a doctor in that you start off in, you know, learning your anatomy, you know, the parts of the body. And, you know, you kind of get to learn the essentials of what you need to, to be a doctor. And then gradually you build up a bit of experience in lots of different areas. And then some people go into general practice or some people go in and specialize in a particular area, such as neurology or uh, surgery or, or whatever else. But I think it's, it's quite similar to that in product management in that there's lots and lots of different things you need to be able to get your head around. And you need to keep learning new skills because everything's moving so quickly and new technologies are coming available. It's a really odd one. I mean, it's quite fun. But if you are a generalist, it's heaven because you get to dip into everything. Absolutely. It strikes me as the type of activity where educating each other is important, you know, which is where the speaking comes in from you because your talks focus on learning to do product management. They're about the practice of product management for people who are either have to do it because they're a startup founder or just ended up in that role, I guess, in a large organization yeah. and really don't know where to start. Absolutely. The talks kind of come from the book to an extent. Um, so I set out a while ago to essentially start sharing my mistakes uh, with a wider audience. Always fun. Always good. Maybe, maybe <laughs> because I've made some real doozies and they're great stories. And it amuses me to tell other people about them. Walk us through one. This is too good. Make a good one. <laughs> Often it boils down to, to things like people stuff. So when I said at the beginning that you have no authority, you can't tell people what to do, you know, this is because, you know, when I was a junior product manager, I just got to the role, I had this misguided thought that yes, I was the CEO of the product and I could, you know, tell my development team what to do. And you know what? It didn't turn out so Kaboom. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, it's when you're when you're in your twenties, you know, it's kind of a hard lesson to learn that, you know, you've actually got to be diplomatic and and yeah. you've got to kind of be a bit more empathetic and and so on. And so obviously I've grown as a person and I'm not making sort of the same kind of mistakes as I was maybe when I was younger. But the thing is is that particularly since you know, writing the book about four or five years ago and the blog articles and so on that I share, it's all about really helping people to avoid the common mistakes that you would do if you're coming at it from first principles. And because there's no formal training necessarily or, or standardized training, at least, people are coming at this from first principles. They turn up at work one day and they're told you're a product manager now, and uh, half yeah. of them have to Google what on earth that means. So really what, what I'm trying to do is to help people avoid the obvious mistakes, because you learn from mistakes and don't get me wrong, it's a useful thing. But there's some you can just say, you know what, I don't need to go through that experience myself. Yeah, because um, Jock has done it for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, technical, in technical. <laughs> You've written a book, right? And uh, a lot of the speakers that we talk to have written books, yes. uh, even though it's... Uh, <laughs> An awful, terrible, horrible experience. <laughs> it's, it's so much pain, it's, it's uh, almost not worth it. But I mean, what I found from my writing is that um, it does make speaking easier because you've sort of put in the thinking time. On, on stage, it's a well of, of kind of knowledge and forethought, I guess, that you can draw on. It just means that you, you, know, you, you feel less nerves and things like that on stage because you know that you have the material down, so to speak. Yeah. The storytelling aspect is something that I've really had to get to grips with. I, you know, like pretty much everyone else, you know, started off with the, you know, the, the PowerPoints at work kind of public speaking. Mm. 
And you know what? I kind of look back and cringe. Oh, you get away with absolute rubbish. Oh, it's horrific. The way of conveying information was not a great experience. And I'm surprised anyone, you know, paid any attention whatsoever. But gradually, I kind of moved into realizing that by sharing a story of something that had happened to me, first of all, it was a bit more personal. It was much easier to remember because it's something I'd experienced. I got away from, you know, the very scripted follow the bullet points and, and got into more of a personal chat kind of way of speaking. And that greatly helped with the inevitable um, butterflies that I'd have before um, giving any talk. But also the aspect of changing my own mindset so that it was no longer about giving a performance as such, but it was more about what can I do to help the people in the audience? In other words, what can I teach them about or tell them about that will help them become better product managers? And as soon as I flicked that switch to I'm helping the audience rather than broadcasting to the audience. It really made the talks a lot easier for me. Yeah, you, you were kind of mission-driven then, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just funny how when you just frame something in a slightly different way, it suddenly changes your entire approach to it. Even though in reality, as a consultant, you have to do things like speaking to generate business for yourself. Absolutely. Generate leads and all that sort of thing. That doesn't have to be the primary driver as such. If you change the mission to being something audience focused, it's more effective for all the outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, product management is all about understanding the needs of your audience. You're on the spot, aren't you? Well, it's genuinely, it's, it's that thing where, you know, even thinking about the way in which you convey information is really important. So I've done, I do quite a lot of training and I always found that I'd have to say things or present things in two or three different ways mainly so that I could ensure that people who learn by doing are catered for, as well as the people who learn by listening and the people who learn by reading. So thinking about kind of the needs of the audience, making sure things are visible on your slides is kind of like a really big thing for me. Yeah. Tailoring what you're doing to the needs of your audience suddenly makes the whole thing far more enjoyable and pleasurable. I mean, aside from the need for a bit of learning, there's a need for entertainment. There's a need to not be bored for half an hour when yeah. somebody's giving a giving a talk on a stage or, or on a, a video conference call. Your personal website is pretty good, actually. And we'll put a link in, in the show notes. Thank you. It's quite comprehensive. And you have, you have a speaking page, uh, which is really impressive. You know, it lists all of your talks going back probably the last 10 years or so, I'd say. Yeah. There must be a, a progression, though. Like if I go back right to the start and then look at your speaking style, that changed to the sort of audience focus do you think it would be possible to, to observe that at some point in that series of talks? I think I learned to relax a lot more. Yeah. Funnily enough, looking at one of the talks from about 2015. Um, so this was about, I guess, two or three years into doing the conference speaking more formally as a, as part of my job. And um, I was very sort of straight backed and really trying to present the formal face. I think I was just, I think I was almost afraid of just relaxing a bit and being a bit more friendly and having a joke and enjoying it and you know speaking to the audience a bit more personally and it, it's funny I, I kind of look back and go oh, that's a very different style of talking and whereas now you know it's almost veering too far the other way and uh it's like i've really got to rein it in sometimes <laughs> no 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 the audience likes that there's a couple of anecdotes that probably shouldn't be in in, in the public domain now but there we go <laughs> Now let's focus on how you got speaking gigs. So sort of pre-COVID, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it mostly that you'd sent in proposals or did, was it mostly by invitation? What way did you end up on stage? I think to begin with, it was very much by invitation. I think what had happened is, again, it, it partly came off the book. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that kind of thing where, but also 
you know, I've been writing, I've been blogging I think since about 2010 now. So I've got at least 10 years worth of material. Just by virtue of being there for such a long period of time, I think people, you know, would find me and would go, okay, he sounds like he's got some interesting stories to tell. Would he be available? And what happened, I think, was then once you do one, maybe some people are attending those talks who are sort of hunting for talent to you know, to speak at their own events. And then it kind of snowballs a bit from there and you do a bit more here and there and so on and so forth. But yes, yeah, I've been quite lucky because not just with the speaking, but I think with a lot of my um, consultancy and training work has been through referral or through recommendation or people just finding me and inviting me to speak. So I'm very lucky. You do yourself a disservice. Your, your online presence is very polished. Thank you. Thank you. I think that certainly has something to do with it. There's definitely a lesson to be learned there in terms of the return from investing in, in all of that material. Mm. How have things changed now with our new world order in terms of your speaking engagements? Not just the experience of virtual events and that sort of thing, but has the nature of events changed, frequency, that type of thing? You know what? I think there's a lot more of them now, particularly in tech. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's because everyone's realized that as soon as you remove the need to be physically present, you can suddenly open up to a much broader audience. And so as a result, I think either people are marketing their conferences or speaking events more broadly than they would otherwise have done because people can attend. But I think that by definition, the nature of them has changed. It's a very different vibe to be organizing an event where you don't have the energy of all the people in the room necessarily to the same extent. And so how um, event organizer are kind of adapting and creating something that suits the medium is a really interesting one. And I think people are still very much finding their way with that. And I think it will only continue to evolve. Are the audiences broader, but smaller with more frequent events? Is that what you're seeing? I think so. I think there's an element of, even if you've paid for to attend something online, there's an element of, well, I don't have to be there because you've not really had to make any effort to get to it. It's not the same as if you had to you know, go on public transport or even get on a flight to potentially attend a conference because you don't have to make so much effort. You don't have to invest so much effort to get to the thing. Somehow means I think people are more likely to drop off or not bother with it or you know, be doing something else and not give 100% focus to the event while they're listening in. So if that means you've got to do shorter talks or make an even bigger effort to make them engaging just to keep people in the present and actually engaging and, and being attentive, then that's maybe, I think, how things are changing. But I'm sure that we're not going to be getting, you know, thousands of people in a big conference, you know, sort of room online as we would have done if it was necessarily an event in person. But yeah, it's, it's a kind of an odd one. It still has to settle, really, doesn't it? Mm. The other interesting question, and this is, this is a loaded question, of course, with a, with a totally blatant agenda behind it, but uh, <laughs> you are doing a paid <laughs> digital masterclass soon. Yes, I am. <laughs> do you think people are starting to pay for online events? Or do you think people will be more willing to pay for them? I think so. As the, the old adage goes, content is king. And I think if you've got people speaking that people want to listen to, then... I think it's reasonable to, for myself, you know, speaking as a participant primarily, I think it's reasonable to pay to listen to those people. Now, whether the economics, you know, are necessarily the same. So I don't think necessarily you can charge the same amount for no, no. an all singing, all dancing conference where you've got meals provided, there's a big after party and all that kind of stuff. You know, clearly you can't charge for the experience in the same way. 
But certainly, I think you, you, you can and should be able to charge people for high quality premium content. Now, whether every conference or whether every organizer is necessarily sticking to that and making sure they get good speakers to justify the cost of attending is a different question. But then that's no difference to the in-person conferences. You know, it was always a bit of a lottery as to kind of yeah. the, the, the speakers you're going to get if once you got past the keynotes and the, and the headliners. So I don't know. It always felt that the in-person conferences up until the start of this year were serving many different functions. Obviously, there was the learning content element. Yes. But then often you'd go to a conference and maybe only 20% of the talks were any good. Maybe you don't even attend 20% of the talks because mm. multi-track. A lot of it was about in-person networking. A lot of it was about yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of it was about, you know, your boss was just giving you a bit of bit of a perk, a bit of a reward. Go and see Copenhagen. Yeah. You know? Thanks for your great job on, on the last project, right? <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if you, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, certainly the the in-person networking. I'm one of these kind of introverts, but extrovert when needed to be. And you know, I can kind of turn it on for a period of time and then I kind of have to go and be quiet somewhere for a little while. Yeah. To Many speakers are like that, actually. Uh, yeah. And, and I think quite a lot of product managers, bizarrely, uh, I think fit that kind of character trait as well. You know, I don't think I'm overgeneralizing when I say that. But I, and so for me, at least, I mean, I appreciate, you know, I'm not everyone and, you know, and so on. But when I go to a conference, I kind of catch up with maybe the people I know, maybe speak to a couple of people that, you know, I've not met before, but I'm not really working the networks as well as maybe I could be, or as well as somebody who's a bit more, you know, outgoing and confident might want to do. So even in those face-to-face conferences, I didn't feel that necessarily I was getting a huge amount of networking out of it because I kept, you know, looking out for the people I already knew because that's easy. We all just did them because it was just the way it was. Yeah. So we just didn't really think that it could be another way. Exactly. Given that your networking is probably going to be restricted to a relatively small group of people that you can probably identify in advance because there were all these kind of conference meetup apps um, that would be created at the time. I think when you're in, in a similar situation where you're kind of into these, you know, online breakout rooms that you now get in, you know, commonly in online events these days, you're effectively getting the same value as you would have done in person because you're still speaking probably to the same number of people you would have done in person anyway. Yeah. You're not trying to speak to a thousand people in one day. What do you make of the, the breakout room concept? Is it trying too hard to replicate real life? I've had good and bad experiences, let's say. It kind of depends how you get thrown into the room. If somebody's kind of almost curating like a dinner party, the, the, the people in the room, so that there's probably some interesting topics or uh, something that will, will, will spark a good discussion, then that kind of thing can work. But also the reverse is equally true, which is if you kind of get stuck in a, a weird room that, you know, where everyone's not particularly keen on talking to each other, <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be a grand experience either. I think there's an element of maybe, you know, having someone who can not moderate, but at least, you know, provoke the discussion. You can only do this with volunteers. It'd be too expensive otherwise, really. But mm. virtual events in some ways need virtual volunteers to, to man those breakout rooms and, and, guide the conversation maybe maybe that's what's yeah or at least get it started but you know create create a little spark because once it gets going hopefully it generates its own momentum and then, and then off it goes but sometimes you just need someone to to take the first step for you to either ask a you know a particularly not controversial but you know interesting question that will provoke some more discussion or to offer something 
which in itself can provoke other people to then be a bit more confident about sharing something themselves. But I guess, you know, it's, it's a weird one because even though maybe you can see the faces on the camera, there's always a sense of you're not quite sure, you know, who's listening, uh, which is one of the disadvantages, I think, of these video conferences. And, but that's, you know, something we just got to live with because it's not going to change anytime soon. But yeah, it's, it's a different experience. But I think with a good host, good curators, people kind of actively trying to stimulate the conversation and, and think about how people fit together then potentially it can be a really, really good experience as well. Yeah, it does come down to that way the host manages the whole experience for people. Yeah. On a more practical level, have you now kind of set up a home studio for for delivering talks? What have you done there in terms of equipment and uh, environment and all that sort of stuff? We were talking... um, a little bit beforehand, and uh, you know, I say I've been a busy boy. Uh, <laughs> the fact of it is that um, I've had to learn so many new skills recently. I've got to grips with some basic video videography skills, uh, some basic video editing, um, sound editing, that kind of stuff. And you know what? You can throw a, a reasonably competent rig together for not a great deal amount of money. I mean, I've spent maybe a, a few hundred quid tops um, on some decent lights. And a couple of like um, widgets that will allow me to hook up a decent SLR to my laptop as a camera to replace the shonky um, webcams that I've got elsewhere. But it's it's surprisingly easy. So my setup at the moment is I've got a DSLR at the back of the room, just in front of it, but out of shot. I've got what a spare kind of old telly which I've hooked up to my computer to give me my speaker notes and slides just next to the camera. So I'm looking at the camera. Lovely! Wow. And um, I've got this, uh, and it's open source, so it's free software, um, open source broadcast studio software called um, OBS Studio. Yes, all the YouTubers and Twitchers. Yeah, and yeah, stuff, and, you yeah, know, yeah. game streamers and all that kind of thing. They, they swear by it, and it's pretty good. So, and it's relatively easy to get into as well. You know, it just works. And is that compatible with, um, you know, Zoom and that sort of thing? Well, that's the great thing. So there's, well, that one did say, like, it sound like an advert for OBS because that's nuts. But, <laughs> um, you know, there's various plugins. And essentially what you can do is you can create a virtual output, a virtual camera. Oh, right. And then, spits, yeah. Uh, spits out whatever you've got in a studio. Right, so, got it. So it just hooks so into I'm, anything, right? Yeah, yeah. So with any luck, you know, when, when I'm giving the, um, uh, the series of talks in October, what I'm going to have is a slightly better experience than maybe you'd expect from your average Zoom call. So you're going to be able to see my face bigger next to the slides. I'm going to be able to shift between, you know, full face when I need to talk to the audience and, you know, describe something, you know, versus full slides or a mixture of the two. I can throw in video clips a bit more easily and just raise the production values a little bit. Oh, that's, yeah, I look forward to that. I need to get to grips with that myself. It's surprisingly easy to do. And I've literally got it all running off my laptop at the moment. Open broadcast software. Yeah, OBS Studio. Yeah, you can just download it and get going. It'll work on Windows and Macs. Marvelous, marvelous. And so on and so forth. So it's great. But yeah, it's it's remarkable actually what you can do these days with free software or or low-cost software. All, All I've really invested in is a couple of decent lights, a couple of decent tripods and that's about it but yeah hopefully i'll be able to give you a preview so you can actually judge for yourself whether it's yeah, in the call I look forward to that. but um 
Do you deliver them sitting down or do you stand up and walk around the room or what approach do you take there? I think practically just because of the space I've got. Uh, if, if you could see, I've, I've had to shift sofas and so on out of the way to get yeah. space. <laughs> but I think realistically, I'm going to be sitting down, but with the shot of me sufficiently wide that you can see my arms. Right. Um, because of course, I, I, I gesticulate wildly whenever I'm talking, which I'm sure is uh, a common trait. Oh, that's an extra mode of communication. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so making sure that you can actually see what I'm talking about and rather than being too zoomed in or too zoomed out, I'm just a speck in the horizon. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to be sitting down. So it won't be as necessarily as dynamic as me wandering around a stage, but you know what, for the purposes of what we're doing, actually it doesn't matter too much. So yeah, it seems to be not too bad. I think uh, I'm not going to try the outside broadcast. I don't think I'm quite ready for that yet. But with any luck, what I've got will, will actually look presentable and be watchable as well as having good content. So I'm kind of trying to make it as, as good as I can do in the circumstances. Okay, well, we, we absolutely look forward to that. And of course, all the details are on your website if, if people yes. want to learn about product management and also experience this um, new generation of, of uh, online experience, the, the digital masterclass. Mm-hmm. Jock, it's been um, fabulous talking to you today. Really interesting. And Thank you. the tips about the um, broadcast studio are certainly yeah. very, very interesting. I mean, I'm encouraged yeah. to go and try it out myself. Now. Absolutely, there's nothing stopping you these days. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.